Uh, Rick Madison here, Rick and Friends. Thank you so much for listening. We have someone here who's a bit of a historian, um, and he's someone who's uh, who's going to give us some insight into some of the landmarks around Kelowna. And I've looked, I've been looking forward to this because I know I always learn something. And that's Bob Hayes, past president of the Kelowna branch of the Okanagan Historical Society. So, so Bob, so so glad you got a chance to uh, come into the studio today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Rick. I hope it's worthwhile for you and your listeners. So, uh, Bob, let's talk a bit about the Father Pandozi area of town. Now, I drive through that on Ben Volan. I look over to my left when I'm going home. I live in the Lower Mission. And uh, and I have to make time to stop in there. I've, I've driven by there when there's tractors on display and various events. But kind of give me an, an overview of, of why that's such a special place for Okanagan. Well, it, it is the first non-Indigenous permanent settlement in the central Okanagan. It dates back to 1860. At this point, I have to say there is no such place as the Father Pendozi Mission. That astonishes people, but it's actually called the Mission of the Immaculate Conception. And the Historical Society and other groups have given it the wrong name. So it is actually the first attempt at permanent settlement for reasons we are still debating, rightly or wrongly, it was an oblate Roman Catholic mission designed to administer the faith largely to the Indigenous people. So but from Penticton to Vernon, I just want to uh, clarify this. That is the first settlement area? Actually, from from the Osuyas border, Pretty much north to Kamloops. Kamloops is, of course, a much older t- a town. goes back to, what, 1812. But actually, in the entire Okanagan, the, the, what we call the Pandozi Mission, is the first permanent non-Indigenous settlement. dates back to 1860, which is not that long ago. That's interesting, though, that uh, it's, it's still under review, it sounds like. There still seems to be some, uh, let's even say, controversy as far as what you know, uh, the name or the dates, like it seems like there's still some stuff up in the air. Absolutely. I mean, the the raison d'etre for for the mission itself is, of course, controversial. It is colonialization of the indigenous people. It was a mission designed to bring the Roman Catholic faith largely to the indigenous people. So by definition, it's going to have quite a bit of controversy about it. And we're still dealing with that, wrestling with that as we deal with our own history. Now, where do you find the archives for something like this? Like, where where would you go for for research or... Well, the archives used to be over in Nelson, and, and that's when I accessed them years ago. They actually have been moved as the diocesan uh, headquarters has been moved to Kelowna. Right next to the the Father Pendozi mission is the, the, uh, the diocesan archives, but I don't believe it's up and running yet. Some of the records also are, are stored at the Mission down near Vancouver. That's the the headquarters of the Oblate Order in British Columbia. So the records are kind of scattered. I have to say, Rick, a lot of the records are lost. Mm. It's uh, it's a sad reality. I've been looking for some of the records. They don't seem to exist. Now, why? It, it's clear that history is a is a passion for you. Why? Why are you so interested in history? Has it been a lifelong passion for you, or is this something that, that came about lately? Like, w- when did you start diving into this? I think the moment I was conceived. <laughs> uh, I've always loved history. I, my, I was born here. My family goes back 150 years. But it's to me, history is always exciting because it's about people. 
and I loved teaching. I taught grades four through seven. Whenever I could, I would sneak in a history lesson. And I'd always say to the children, history has to be interesting, exciting. It's dealing with all sorts of people, all sorts of events. When you think you've learned it all, something else comes up and you go, wow. And those are the moments I love is when someone said, Bob, did you know? And I go, no, I did not. Tell me more. So I'm still learning. Okay, so we're we're talking about history, and and of course we have that early Francophone settlement in the 1860s and in 1870s, which is Bob. Well, when Father Pendozzi and Father Richard, Brother Sorrell, the Oblates settled here in 1860, they wanted to encourage non-Indigenous settlement. Well, keep in mind they were all French Roman Catholics, the, the Oblates. So who did they want to settle here? French Roman Catholics. So a lot of our earlier settlers were people like Isidore Boucherie, Mount Boucherie, Auguste Gillard, uh, François Ortelon, the Lekim family, Joseph Chrétien, uh, William Pion, uh, Alphonse Lefebvre. And I say the men's names because the women were largely not uh, francophone. The women, if they actually were married or had a, a partner, the women were usually indigenous. But the men were francophones. Interesting. And we okay. were very French francophone, really from the 1860s through till about the 1870s and 80s. Then the population just dies away. Now, are we talking, so where where did they emigrate from? Where, where are they coming from? France and Quebec. Really? So yes. it's a mixture. Yes. Yeah, so when Father Pandozzi came into the valley in 1859, he actually had with him two brothers from the island of Montreal, the Laurence brothers, Lawrence Avenue is named after them, and that was the start of the indigenous or the francophone settlement. And it just grew from there. But as I say, a lot of them did not have wives or partners. And, and the French population by the 1880s is, is gone. And then we become very English after that. We still have the names with, with places like Boucherie or Gillard Street or uh, Blondeau Crescent. But that's other than that, the French settlement... It's gone. Hmm. So it seems to me like Kelowna is is basically um, a, a culmination of indigenous as well as francophone. Like it seems like that's that's who started Kelowna, the area, really. Yeah, absolutely, which isn't surprising because of course the francophone. A lot of the francophones, not just here but other areas, worked for the Hudson's Bay Company or the North Northwest Company. So they were dealing with the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, they actually had indigenous wives who, who traveled with them as they moved about the country, eventually, say, settling here in the central Okanagan. And we have to keep in mind, Kelowna does not exist till 1892. So if you see anything with Kelowna before 1892, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> so we're just talking about francophones. And of course, uh, Ben Volen, um, the original Kelowna town site, is, that, is there a... Tell me a little bit about the significance of Benvolen. I travel it just about every day because, like I said, it's a great thoroughfare for me. But unfortunately, my knowledge ends there that it's a roadway, but it actually has a lot more significance. Benvolen was supposed to be the original Kelowna. In 1890, we have George Grant McKay, a very wealthy Scotsman. He was purchasing property in the in the Benvolen area, and he decided to found start a town called Benvolen, which is a Gaelic word, and that's why we have the Gushigan House, which is a restaurant. We have the beautiful Heritage Church on Benvolen Road. That was to be the original Kelowna. 
the idea being that he would break up the, the land into small portions, sell it to wealthy Scotsmen, Englishmen, people from Ontario. They would come out here, plant their orchards, and live the life of Riley. A train was supposed to come through, the railway was supposed to come through from Vernon through Benvolen and end up going towards Rock Creek. Of course, where the train goes, you have towns. Didn't happen. The train didn't come here. 1892, Bernard Lakeem started the town of township of Kelowna, close to the lake. Benvolen was doomed. So it really only existed as a town for a year or two. But it did have, as I say, a, a, a church. It had its own hotel. It had a blacksmith shop. All the streets were designated. This was to be a community. It didn't happen. Um, again, I, I just... Uh it puts a smile on my face when I'm when I'm able to travel through my community and and just know a little bit more about what I'm seeing and and you see these names you don't really know you know how much of a, an effect they had on on the community and the growth of it um, so further to that let's let's talk about Gushigan and and that area seems to have a, again a lot of historical significance so just. Bob, just, just kind of take me through what Gushigan means. Well, Gushigan, I believe, mean, it's a Gaelic word. I believe means something like place of the furs. Gushigan was a ranch uh, bought by the Lord and Lady Aberdeen. He was later the governor general. It was bought for Lady Aberdeen's erstwhile kind of useless brother, uh, <laughs> Coots Marshbanks. And the idea was Lady Aberdeen purchased this ranch with her husband's money and her money as a place for a cootsie, as she called him, to settle and live a pious life. Did not happen. So Gushigan was a ranch where he was supposed to learn the ranching trade. Well, cootsie learned some of the ranching trade, like shooting and hunting and drinking and gambling, not the more practical aspects. So Gushigan was, was bought as a ranch for Lady Aberdeen's brother, Coots Marshbanks. He lived there for a number of years, and in 1903, it was sold to the to the Cameron family, and the, the, at that point, Lord and Lady Aberdeen's connections here ceased to exist. But it is a very important part of our, our community in that with Coots Marshbanks here and the Aberdeen connection, it was some of the wealthier people in Scotland, England, Ontario went, wow, if it's good enough for Lord and Lady Aberdeen, must be a pretty special place. So I think it was starting to advertise and promote the area and say, come to the Okanagan, you'll love it. The very first influencer. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, and maybe not for the right reasons, Coots Marshbanks. He's one of my favorites, but um, definitely a colorful character. So it seems to me, Bob, that you, when you're reading through history, like these these people come alive. Like they come alive off the pages where you can actually tell okay, this was a bit of a nefarious one and this one was a little bit of a idle hands. And, you know, because after a while you start to put the pieces together of what kind of people uh, were around. And, and really it gives you a wonderful perspective because you said history is about people and that's what you're really, really passionate about digging up. Um, I want to talk a bit about, and in, in, again, I'm, I'm kind of blown away by this. Did Kelowna have a Chinatown? We did. Now, the town site of Kelowna was established in 1892. Shortly thereafter, we had the creation of Chinatown. Now, Chinatown was on the south side of Leon Avenue. It's where the Gospel Mission is now. And then it sort of 
went around the corner onto what's now Harvey Avenue, basically between Water Street and Abbott Street. And Harvey Avenue at that point was called Eli Avenue. So Chinatown was basically one block on two sides of, of different streets. Had a population of several hundred people. It was a, an up-and-coming community. And a lot of the Chinese men, a few Chinese families, but the head tax sort of killed that idea. But a lot of the Chinese men would work in, chi in Chinatown or they'd work as gardeners in town. A lot of the Chinese men actually, once the spring came, would head off from Chinatown, go out into the country and work for families on a sharecropping business. And then they would, when the harvest came in, in say October, they would collect their, their share of the harvest, go back into Chinatown, spend the winter there with their visiting with their countrymen, reading the newspapers, going to the uh, Dark Coon Club, playing gambling. And then again, once the, the spring came, they'd head off again. So Chinatown was a huge part of our history, provided a lot of local labor. Interesting. In uh, is there any kind of remnants of of Chinatown that are still like a structure anywhere in in the community that you can think of? Not at all, which is tragic. Chinatown was basically flattened about 1970. I, I was involved with helping to rummage through what was left of Chinatown. The museum, uh, Ursula Surtees, the curator, was a wonderful a woman. She got about a week worth of time to go th into Chinatown and start salvaging. And we were salvaging madly, literally as the bulldozers were flattening the buildings, nothing, no buildings were saved. Thank goodness for Ursula Surtees. She was gathering up documents and furniture and Chinatown it was basically gone in a week. Mm. That's sad, actually, because it it seems like it's a it's a link to our history. It's a link to our timeline. Absolutely, it, and it was gone so quickly. So again, Bob, I what I really want to do is just dive into various historical events around Kelowna, um, and and there's so many to talk about. We don't <laughs> we we have days and days to speak about it, but we just don't have that much time. So uh, I want to talk about Doctor Sun Yat Sen's 1911 visit to Kelowna. What what kind of impact, what kind of significance did that have? Oh, huge significance. I was absolutely gobsmacked when I heard about this. This event still gives me goosebumps. 1911, Dr. Sun Yat-sen was from China. He was in British Columbia and other parts of Canada, touring about letting his countrymen know something's going on in China. I need some funding. I need to tell you what's going on. Big things are going to happen. So on March 24th, 1911, which was a Friday, Dr. Sun Yat-sen arrived in Kelowna. He was here for three nights. He did a couple of presentations to the local population, not just the, the local Chinese population. He was telling them about what's going on in China, what's, what is ahead. Now, he stopped at places like Victoria, Vancouver. He was, he was on a fundraising junket. Well, the next year, 1912... We have the revolution in China. We have the deposing of the last emperor of China. We have the creation of the people's or the Republic of China with a president. Who was its first president? Dr. Sun Yat-sen. So the year before he was on the world stage, this incredible man was here in Kelowna for three days. I just find that amazing. Of course, that's why in, in Vancouver, for instance, there was a Sun Yat-sen garden because he was here that same year. But little sleepy Kelowna 
had Dr. Sun Yat-sen, arguably the most powerful influencer ever to visit Kelowna. Wow. I, I could see why that actually had such an amazing impact on you. It yeah. did. And yet, unfortunately, the local uh, media made quite light of it. In fact, they used it to sort of slam the local Chinese population. Little did they know that this man, just wait, wait a year. Look at the newspapers a year from now, and his name is splashed everywhere. I, I just think it's... Well, one of the other well-known visitors we had in 1893, we had Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the one who was assassinated at Sarajevo. He was here for 15 minutes. Still part of our history. So we, again, I want to, I came across this quote. If you don't know history, then you don't know anything. You are a leaf that doesn't know it is part of a tree. Michael Crichton said that. Uh, the other one I love is a person without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. Um, and, and that's what I think about. And, and again, I think a lot of people don't know the significance or, or why, you know, we always hear about history repeats itself, which it does. Why do you think the, the Okanagan Historical Society is such an impactful organization for, for us, like for the community? Well, I think for one reason, Rick, because we our roots are deep. Now, the society itself goes back to September 4th, 1925. That's almost 100 years ago. And keep in mind, at that point, we still have a lot of the old-time Indigenous, non-Indigenous people around to start telling the story. So a lot of the history that otherwise would have been lost has been recorded by, by people like F.M. Buckland, one of the founders of the society, then in 1948, the Kelowna branch was founded. So we have our own branch of the society where we can focus on central Okanagan history, whether it's uh, natural history, that's part of our mandate, trees, birds, animals, uh, natural formations, or human history. Because really the two are, are so closely connected. You can't separate one without the other. So the historical society... Not to be confused with the Heritage Society, which is an amazing group. Heritage Society deals with buildings and structures. They do a phenomenal job. Historical Society, we deal with the stories about the buildings, the people, the events. We like to write things down. Heritage Society likes to preserve buildings so you can stand and admire them. <laughs> we work well together. <laughs> I would imagine you're on speed dial with each other. Oh, we are. We're in close contact. We're good. We're good buddies. Um, so is, and, and how many people belong to the society? Is it, is there different ways to be involved? Is, is there an active membership drive? Like how does that even work? Well, we have a, a member, an executive. I've been on the executive for, this is my 43rd year. And, uh, we have an executive of about a dozen people who are in charge of things like articles for the, the press, uh, articles for our book. Uh, various fundraising opportunities. Uh, traditionally, we have an annual general meeting in March where we have a guest speaker. We usually have about 130, 140 people. That's when people renew their memberships and sort of reconnect with the society. Of course, with COVID these past years, we haven't had our AGM. Hopefully, in 2023, we will again. In the meantime, we offer different events at the Pandozi Mission, or we have a, a newspaper column. We, we just try to get the word out. So this is interesting. I, I mean, I've I've boated around there. I've hiked around there, and and again, I I don't know why it's called Paul's Tomb. Like, I mean, where where did that name come from? And and, and there's got to be somebody buried there or something. There are two people buried there. 
Paul is actually a surname. Rembler Paul was a, a, from Montreal. He was sort of a veterinarian, not officially trained as a veterinarian. He and his wife, Elizabeth Hannah Davies, fairly wealthy, wealthy in Montreal, moved to Manitoba, made a whack of money in the St. Paul mines. That's why we have St. Paul Avenue or St. Paul Street in Kelowna named after that. They then moved to Regina, bought some land in 1880s, 1890s, made a whack of money and moved to Kelowna about 1906 and retired, had a palatial house on, on the north side of Bernard Avenue and lived there. And then they had a summer house out on near Poplar Point. That's where they loved to be. And they thought, we want to spend eternity here. So in 1910, they hired George Patterson and a few others to build a tomb in the side of, of Knox Mountain. And that was where Rembler and his wife, Elizabeth Hannah, are buried. It was designed to accommodate eight people, but they only had one son and he already died in, in, in Saskatchewan. So there was only the two buried there. She died in 1910. He died in 1916. I find it quite amusing because he had this lovely house in Kelowna, but he went to Edmonton for the winter and died there. Who goes to Edmonton for the winter? But he, he did. He died there and they brought his body back and he and his wife and supposedly the family cat are buried in Paul's tomb. You can't see it now. It was it was backfilled years ago because vandals were trying to break in. There were stories that maybe there was gold or something because the Pauls were rich. But that's part of our history. So Paul is not a first name. It's actually the last name of a family that was here, made its mark, now it's gone. Okay, so I'm driving downtown. And again, I've been to numerous events there, and I've, I find uh, just in the walls, it feels like there's this richness of history. And, and I speak, of course, of the Laurel Packing House. Can you kind of give us a, an idea of the, histor the history behind that building? Because I, again, whenever I'm in there, I always think there's, there's so many stories in here. Well, the building is just part of, a, of, a, of the whole community, the, the whole Ellis Street. Ellis Street was our commercial area. It was, uh, this is where there were a lot of packing houses built you know, early 1900s, around the First World War, our fruit packing houses and places like the Rowcliffe Cannery. So 75 years ago, if you'd gone down Ellis Street heading north, it was all packing houses, the Laurel being one of them. Now, over the years, we lost a lot of them. Back in the early 60s, we had a pyromaniac set light to two or three of those buildings. I remember them going in and seeing them burn. And that area gradually was sort of gentrified and a lot of the old packing houses were, were removed. And now I have to get back to Ursula Surtees, amazing woman. She was the curator of the Kelowna Museum. She said, wait a minute, this is one of the last of the buildings, the Laurel Packing House. We better save it or our industrial past is gone. So Ursula had a way of getting funding she approached all the levels. She got the city involved. She got all the various other groups involved. And they saved the laurel literally at the last minute and preserved it. And, of course, it's now one of our heritage sites. It's part of the Kelowna Museums. It, it represents our agricultural past. And it is so crucial because it's the, it's the last of its, of its kind at the north end of town. And when you consider at one point we had lots of packing houses up and down the valley it's one of the last. And it does seem like Ellis seems to have that, that catchment of, of so much history. 
like up and down, you see so many buildings. Of course, they've been repurposed, some have, and, uh, and they're still standing there today. So that's where, I guess, the Heritage Society kicks in. Absolutely. And thank goodness we, we tend to think of, of heritage as being beautiful churches or schools or Edwardian homes. But we have also to remember the industrial component of things where people would bench pack at the laurel, load fruit onto the train that would be uh, the train tracks were right there. And then they would load, the, load them onto the barges and head, head it off to the rest of the world. So the laurel was, is so important to our history. And again, thank goodness we have it saved because those buildings are few and far between. So when we were chatting earlier, you mentioned a name again. I'm so glad you're on the program because, uh, you know, as we learn more about the people that were instrumental in our history, um, this name keeps popping up and it's Sarah Jameson Craig. And uh, she was a bit of a visionary, actually. She was amazing. And I discovered her quite by accident when I was doing my cemetery tours, which I do quite regularly through the museum. She's buried up in the cemetery. Her gravestone has something to the effect of, thy children and grandchildren rise up to thank thee. Well, right away, I thought, what's that all about? Well, Sarah Jameson Craig was born in in rural New Brunswick in the 1850s. She married her first cousin, Joel Bonnie Craig. But they didn't want to remain as country farmers. They had a vision. Their vision was to create a colony in the United States of like-minded people who were vegetarians, who believed in um, hydrology, using water instead of medicine. They believe, they wanted a, a society that was peaceful, egalitarian, and they had this, this great dream. And they had mailing lists back in the 1880s where they had all these people subscribing, their goal being to create this idyllic place. It never happened. Joel died. She spent years wandering around the North America looking for a place. Meanwhile, some of her family had settled in Rutland mm-hmm. around 1915. So she thought, well, I'll give that a try. And she found her Eden. And there's a wonderful book about her uh, called Finding My Edens by her great-granddaughter, uh, who was a professor at McGill. Sarah Jameson Craig, to me, if she was from maybe, if we were, say, in Ontario or Quebec, she would her name would be on the front of the history books. She's, to me, an unsung, amazing Canadian who we need to get to know her story better. So you, let me get this straight though. You were you stumbled upon her name and then found out. Okay, she's got, she's got this amazing journey that that ends up here, and it was just happenstance that you you saw her name on a gravesite kind of thing. Absolutely, and just the wording on her gravestone. It's wow. What does that mean? Why would your children and grandchildren rise up to thank thee? Well, if they were thanking her, I guess, because of her progressive thinking and and the path that she perhaps paved before her. So she's someone I just, when I do my cemetery tours, I I still get goosebumps because I think this is a woman. One of the other things in the 1860s, she was not wearing the the fancy women's crinolines and those massive skirts. She was actually wearing men's garb, like pants, (laughs) working gear. She just, it was a case of, don't tell me what I'm going to do. I have a plan. Thank you very much. I will do it. I'm so happy that and grateful that you're curious. 
<laughs> maybe nosy <laughs> but thank you I, I just I never get tired of this the cemetery is one of my favorite places to go for for inspiration just wander around see a grave marker and go wonder what that story is see and that's funny because uh, I, I love biographies and uh, I, I love learning about other mostly through books again but I never thought of the cemetery as a place where uh, we can start there yeah. oh absolutely there's there's so many stories there and, and I've, I've Barely scratch the surface. Uh, again, when when I drive through this community, this fine community, I'm I'm struck every now and then by you know something that is a structure where I'm like you know I I really don't know anything about it and I'd love to know more. So what do you do? You invite Bob Hayes, <laughs> and, and Bob sorts you out. It's it's really good. Um, so I'm talking about the local Sikh community in Rutland, and there's that beautiful, gorgeous temple, gold domes on it, and a uh, very striking structure. Give me a, just a glimpse into the Sikh community as far as their relationship with Rutland. Well, the Sikh community has deep roots here, and yet it's a community we don't hear a lot about, We, we and we should. The Sikh first came to Rutland area pre-First World War, probably around 1910, and it was an agricultural area. So we have the, some of these young men directly from India. Uh, keep in mind, this is about around the time of the Kamagatamaru sorry, uh, incident. Uh, so these are these are men coming here for a, a better life. Some of them end up going to Vancouver Island to work in the sawmills. Some go to Vancouver area. A few come up to the Okanagan to work in in Rutland. And they established themselves very well. I have to say, our current mayor, uh, Mr. Bazran, his roots, Sikh roots, go back to early 1900s. Mm-hmm. So he's part of that community as well. And so they tended to work in in agriculture in Rutland, and the population was never in the early days all that huge, largely because it was the men who were here. Again, the women were uh, generally in India. One of the, the most well-known ones was, was a man named Laka Singh. I just recently met with his great-nephew and his wife. Laka Singh was a huge landowner in the Ellison district. Uh, when he died in 1951, his estate was worth $145,000. Uh, when Laka Singh died, there was actually a public cremation up in Scotty Creek uh, in 1951-52, attended by, I believe, around 500 people. He was a very, very well-respected individual. So gradually, the Sikh population increased. And of course, it's only been the last, you know, I don't know how many years, decades, it's increased more because we've had families come here, which I think is absolutely wonderful. It, it, it enriches our culture. I remember when I was teaching, I took my students to the Sikh temple. They were shown through the temple. They were given the most wonderful food yeah. and so much hospitality. To me, it's, it's again part of our tapestry that makes our community what it is now, which is exciting. So we have these ebbs and flows and, and historical events happen all the time, of course. And uh, you, have, you have some thoughts around the Spanish flu of 1918. And, and it actually had, it, it, the, I guess, the ripple effect was felt here in this region. Absolutely. Well, of course... The 1918 uh, flu, that was actually the second of, of three waves of the Spanish flu. We were following that. We knew this was the most serious wave. We were The local press was following it. The no, newspapers came out on Thursdays. And they would say, oh, last week the flu hit, hit Toronto. 16 people died. And they would follow it across Canada. 
So by the time it arrived in central Okanagan in 1918, November, we were ready. We'd already closed down the schools. We had everything sealed tight as a drum. And we waited. And then the news in the paper was, we dodged a bullet. Well done, everyone. And it's true. I, I could only find white, one white person who died of the flu in 1918. She was in Peachland. But they didn't look the right place. They looked, if they'd looked in the Asian community, they would have seen one Indo-Canadian, Dalipa Singh, died of the flu. Two Japanese Canadians, men, they were all men who died, died of the flu. No less than nine Chinese Canadians died of the flu. So we had 12 die in the month of November, all middle-aged and younger men, nine of them in Chinatown. So it had a huge impact on, on the population, the, the, particularly Chinatown, which was sealed off. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they were eventually buried up in China, up in the Kelowna Cemetery. But if you go to look at it for their graves in the, Chi in the Chinese section of the cemetery, you won't find them. And the reason being that the Chinese government actually had a policy of paying for bodies of Chinese nationals to be sent home for burial. So those nine Chinese men who died and the one, one of the Japanese Canadians who died, their bodies were dug up, sent back to their homeland for burial. Interesting. Dalipa Singh, I know, is buried in Kelowna Cemetery. And then one, the other Japanese Canadian is also buried there. So the flu hit the area, but it hit a very specific population, males and, and Asian Canadian males. So we have different grave sites around town too. Yes. We have one in, uh, I think, southeast Kelowna that I remember driving by, um, just by Tantalus Winery, I guess. Yes. And then we have a, the other one by Golf and Country Club, and I've hit balls into there. Yes. Yeah. Um, and is there any other, there, there must be other. There's, well, the, the one where the, you know, the golf course is the, is the Kelowna Cemetery. It goes back to 1892, 1893. There's the, the Catholic Cemetery up on Casorso Road. There is the original Catholic Cemetery, which is across from the Pandosi Mission site. It's, there's no markers there other than a commemorative, commemorative one for Father Pandosi. St. Andrew's Church out, out, on the, out in Okanagan Mission has a churchyard. There are numerous small indigenous uh, cemeteries. There's, there's St. Teresa's on Sexsmith Road. There's burial sites all over the place. Plus there's isolated burials, people who are buried on the ranch where they died. More than we'll ever know. It's all... Now, what I'm also curious about is when we settled... Do you have kind of a timeline for population? Because obviously that's it's a point of <laughs> of interest now because it seems like Kelowna is, is exploding with population. Do we have markers like, you know, 1910 and then 1920 and then like every decade? Do we have kind of a marker for population? We do, and it's called the census, which the, the Canadian census, uh, it takes place in years ending with one, so 1901, 1911. So the census is a really good indicator of, of the population, the uh, ethnicity, the gender breakdown, uh, the youth versus older people, what people were doing for employment. The census is such a good source of, of general information. Having said that, it's for genealogical information, it's usually quite useless mm -hmm. because this, the information is quite often wrong, particularly if men gave the information. Men are hopeless at giving information you know, for the census. Well, I think my wife is 47. Well, actually, she's 63, and she was born in Saskatchewan. No, she's born in Halifax. So the census gives you a bit of a snapshot, but you have to take it with a grain of salt. 
Well, I, I know men don't follow directions either or instructions, um, but it seems interesting that census went back that far. I, I had no idea census went back into the 1900s. Yeah, the first census for BC joined Canada in, in July of 1871. We were too late for that year's census. The first census is 1881. And after that, there's a census every 10 years. And they re, you, you look at the 1881 census and there was also a separate indigenous census uh, but you'll get a sense of, of the population, largely white men and indigenous uh, families, and then gradually it changes, and you get more families coming in. You look at, say, the 1921 census, you're starting to get a lot of Eastern European families coming in. We're starting to become much less British. And so just off the top of your head, because this is fun, Bob, uh, 1950. What was our population? 1950. Well, in, by ni- in 1950, Rick, the, there were the, the three cities, Kelowna, Vernon, and Penticton, were all basically the same size. Uh, all probably 1950, probably around seven or 8,000. I'm sure someone will have a more precise number. Penticton usually was the biggest of the three. Vernon was the, was the place where people go to shop because it had the Hudson's Bay and Eaton's. Kelowna was always the poorest third sister. It's like, yeah, Kelowna. <laughs> and then we have the bridge being built. And that just changes everything. Kelowna goes from being a place where you sort of, oh, yeah, to being, oh, that's a nice place. Because I did hear that numerous times that Penticton was supposed to be the central part of the Okanagan. Like it was supposed to be the hub and then Kelowna over, overtook it in, in population. Absolutely. And I mean, Penticton was where the airport was supposed to be built. Mm-hmm. There is still a small airport at Penticton, but Kelowna lobbied for it. We acquired the land out in Ellison in, I think, 1948, I believe. We later had a mayor, uh, Dick Parkinson, who was just saying, let's get this airport going. This is going to be a game changer. And it was. So Parkinson, see another name of from our past. Oh, Dick Parkinson, don't get me started. He, he is just one of my heroes in, in Kelowna. <laughs> An amazing man. So... <laughs> I, I have brushed up on my history previous to this, and I and I was reading about the Archduke Franz Ferdinand um, and his 1893 15-minute visit to Kelowna. But for you, this has so much weight uh, in history, and it's a pivotal moment. Why is that for you, Bob? Well, I think it's because who Archduke Franz Ferdinand was. I mean, we remember our history courses from high school when they fired that shot at Sarajevo in 1914 when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. And that was the sort of the domino that fell, triggering the First World War. All the various treaties came into play. And because of his assassination, well, the inevitable happened, war. Well, Archduke Franz Ferdinand had gone on a two-year trip in 1892 and 1893 he was a. He absolutely loved hunting. He, he, if it moved, he killed it. By his own record, own admission, his diaries record that he killed over two hundred thousand birds and animals in his life. Wow. Uh, for instance, when his boat was pulling into the harbor in India on his trip, he was actually out in the out in the, the deck shooting fish. And so he came to the Okanagan in 1893. He had one goal in mind. That was to find and kill a grizzly bear. Wow. I'm going to say I'm glad he didn't find one, yeah. but he did not. He, he, 
He hired some of the local indigenous people, probably some of the McDougals. They scoured the hills around Penticton. That's where he was based out of. Didn't get his grizzly bear. He traveled with his own, own cameraman, his own cook. I mean, this is a man who traveled in first class and didn't get his grizzly bear, gave up, came up the, up the lake by, by the boat. It would have been the SS Aberdeen at that point. Stopped in Kelowna. Now, Kelowna is one year old in 1893. <laughs> there would have been two or three stores on the main street. Imagine where the, the Paramount sign is, the theater. About there, he would have gone into the Lakeem store. He had 15 minutes. He acquired a few pieces of, of beaded indigenous wear, bought them, took them back to Europe. And apparently, they're in, his, in a museum there, part of yes. our history. So he was here for 15 minutes, but he was here. Everyone has 15 minutes, don't they? Absolutely. <laughs> so you said something there that's kind of interesting, which was about the bridge and, and the fact that, you know, Penticton was supposed to actually overtake Kelowna. It had more population by all, it seems by all opinions that it was going to be the hub uh, for commerce and, and many other things, including the airport. But then something happened and, and it overtook Penticton. The, the bridge. I mean, Kelowna was a difficult place to get to before 1958 because you'd hit West Bank and you want to go from West Bank to Kelowna because you want to head off and maybe go to Alberta or wherever. Well, you had to wait for a ferry. We had a provincial ferry system. We had the, the three ferries, the Lakeem, the Pendozi, and the Lloyd-Jones. And you had to wait for those and pay your little fare and then cross over. And, of course, the ferries finished, I think, about 11 o'clock at night. So... It wasn't, you couldn't pass through Kelowna at any time. 1958, we have the bridge opening. Princess Margaret comes here, she cuts the ribbon. Suddenly, we have a continuous, non-broken highway from the coast through the Okanagan. And people now have the time. They can stop in Kelowna and go, well, this is a pretty nice place. And then, of course, eventually you have the opening of the Rogers Pass and all these other things that make Kelowna so much more accessible. But the bridge was a game changer because it meant that people, oh, I don't need to go down to Penticton and I can travel through Kelowna, but I've got lots of time. I think I just might stop, stay here, stay at one of the auto courts or motels that we had. They were a lot of them across from the Capri um, uh, Mall now on, on what's now Gordon. The bridge, it cannot be overestimated how, what a changer it was. Interesting, too, because uh, as we get further into municipal election, I've had uh, some potential councillors on here talking about a second a second bridge and, and how much it would mean to the community, how, it, how much it would mean to, of course, transport. And it seems to me like, you know, with what you just said, they're not far off. No, no. Uh, the, the bridge is, is crucial to our, our development. And whether we get a second crossing, who knows, but... It, it definitely has shaped our community. And I think it's a reminder of the influence that the lake has on us. It can be a very positive influence, but because of transportation for years, it was actually quite a difficult one because we depended on a ferry system. Once the bridge was in place, so much easier. Um, so again, you said the, the lake has uh, lots of different significant elements to it, of course. It's, uh, it gives us life. It gives us uh, a whole bunch of things. And one of the things is uh, it has its own history. And we're talking of, about the, uh, the CPR boats, 
which uh, the SS Aberdeen, which you mentioned, there was the SS Okanagan and SS Sycamus, apparently. Um, and again, I, I knew none of these things. So why were they so integral? Well, first, they have the Canadian Pacific name attached to them. In Canadian history, there's the two giant corporations, Hudson's Bay Company and CPR. If their names are attached to it, you know it's serious. The, Hudson, the CPR discovered the Okanagan really in the early 1890s. They built a railway, went from Sycamuse to Okanagan Landing near Vernon, called the SNO Railway. That opened in 1892-1893. Well, then they looked at the lake and thought, well, how are we going to get up and down the lake? Well, they launched the first of the boats, the SS Aberdeen, launched in 1893, a paddle wheeler, went up and down the lake, stopping along the lake. That's where the towns came up. That's why Kelowna came about in 1892. Then in 1907, 1908, you had the Okanagan, a slightly bigger boat, again, going up and down the lake. This is The cars are still not really catching on. Highways are few and far between. Then in 1913, I believe it is, they launched the SS Sycamus. This was the cream of the crop. This is the boat that's at the south end of the lake. It's permanently beached at Penticton. This was the CPR knew how to do things. And they used this as part of their promotion. So you could come to the Okanagan, catch the railway from Shushwap to Okanagan Landing, get on the SS Aberdeen, Okanagan, or Sycamus, First-class accommodation, silverware, porcelain, napkins with linen, if you could afford it. And then you would come down the lake and you'd get off, say, the lake at Kelowna at the, at the foot of Bernard Avenue. And you'd look at Kelowna and the CPR again would be promoting it. And you'd go, wow, this is a nice place. <laughs> so the lake boats opened up the whole valley. Well, I got to say, this is uh, this has been so enjoyable for me, and and I have to thank you, Bob, for coming in and and uh, helping us with this rich history that is uh, the Okanagan Valley. So, uh, great work. I'm so glad you're curious, curious enough to saunter through uh, cemeteries and look up names, <laughs> for one. And and it's just so important this linkage to to history. I, I you know I for one. Uh, I'm going to dive back in because uh, you've you've opened up my eyes. So thanks so much, Bob. Thank you very much, Rick. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, I encourage people to get out there, explore their community. You you don't know what you're going to find. Is there any way? Uh, is there a website or or any way to to contact the historical society for to point them in the right direction, or or, or is is there any way to, for them to get in contact with the historical society? If you go online, Kelowna Branch has a, has a, a, a site. Another place I would encourage people to go is the local museum. Uh, Linda Digby, the curator there, the executive director, I should say, an amazing museum. Go across the lake. There's wonderful museums, including the Senchweeps Indigenous Museum. Get out there, look at the buildings, prowl around a cemetery. No shortage of places to go.